0: are in the middle of a series on um, the metaphors of the church, and in the interest of time I'm not going to do much uh, recapping other than to say that uh, the reason we're doing this is be- because we know that it's been a long time since we've done church. Uh, since we've been church in in the sort of traditional sense of the word because of COVID. And so we're thinking about the importance and beauty of the church through these different metaphors that God's word provides for us. And so this morning, we're looking at this, this metaphor of the temple. The Bible describes God's people, among other things, as a temple. So in verse 20 and 21, as we just read, uh, it's built on the foundation of the apostle and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become what? A holy temple in the Lord. Now this is, again, a very rich metaphor with many, many Uh, implications uh, that we could unpack we're not going to unpack all of them but certainly there's some work that we have to do because temples today uh, don't mean the same thing necessarily that temples uh, in our or or, sorry not in our day temples in our day don't mean the same thing as temples uh, did maybe in the ancient near east we don't think about them the same way. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna think about temples and under three headings, we're going to understand what a temple is, how a temple is built, or at least how this temple is built in our text, and then what it means. Those three things, let's have a look together. First of all, what is a temple? Well, a temple is a place where God lives. In verse 22, it says, In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things we need to understand is, is that temples were not unique to the Jews or the people of Israel. Temples were something that was common to all the religions of the ancient Near East. It was common to the Babylonians, it was common to the Persians, and it was, of course, common to the Greeks, The Greeks had temples to all kinds of gods and they had them set up in all kinds of places. And they existed for the purpose of being a house, a dwelling for God. One of the most beautiful of all the Greek temples was actually found in the city of uh, Ephesus. It was the temple to the Greek god Diana, also known as Artemis. And it's uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you Google that, you can see pictures of it. It must have been absolutely spectacular. And that was the house of this god diana or artemis that was the roman name or which one artemis is the greek name diana was the roman name for and this was the place where if you wanted to meet with god if you wanted to have an encounter with god you went to the house of god which was a temple in the old testament the people of Israel met God at the temple as well. It was the place of Yahweh. Now Yahweh was the true God, the only living God, and Yahweh was not contained by this space called a temple because he is present everywhere, of course. But the temple was special in this way. The temple was the place where what's called the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. Now what is that all about, the Shekinah glory of God? If you know your Old Testament, you'll remember that in the book of Exodus, we get the story of God rescuing the people of Israel out of Egypt, and he leads them to this promised land in Canaan, and he leads them by this this pillar of cloud during the day and this pillar of fire by night, this pillar. It was called the glory cloud. It was called the Shekinah glory of God. And the people, while they traveled through the desert, of course, they didn't have, you know, mobile homes like we do and cool campers and stuff like that. So when they settled down for the night, they lived in tents. And there was one special tent called the tabernacle, and that was a tent for God. And every time the Israelites made camp, they set up that tent, and this glory cloud would rest on that tent. And then as soon as God thought it was time to go again, this glory cloud would rise up off the tent, and it would start moving, and the people followed it along. And that was the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. It was his relational presence. And then, when Solomon built the temple of God, he prays that God would dwell in this place among his people. And this glory cloud came down and rested on the temple and there was an earthquake and the people freaked right out and they all fell on their faces because of the brightness and because of the sound and because of the rumbling. And God made his place among his people. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, but you just said God is everywhere. And yet his presence was felt in that place. What does that mean? Well, the Shekinah glory referred to the relational presence of God. Like, you and I, we're all present in this space together. But you're far away. Even the people in the front row are a little bit far away. And so we don't have the relational presence. When you want to have a relationship with someone, what do you do? You get up close and personal and you look each other in the eye, right? You look each other in the eye. Thank the Lord that masks don't cover eyes because then we'd really be in trouble, not just bumping into things, but the eyes are, what do we call it? The window to the soul, right? The eyes are the seat. The face is the seat of the relational presence of someone. And so God was saying that if you want to have the relational presence of me among you, then you build a temple. That's where you put me. And now Paul is saying that the relational presence of God is no longer Solomon's grand temple or the rebuilt temple that Herod made. He's saying that God's presence, God's relational presence is found in the people of God gathered together. It's no longer a building. This is a beautiful church, Knox Presbyterian Church. We love this building. I love these stained glass windows, but that's not actually the church. This is the place where the church comes to meet. We are the church. We are The place where God dwells together. So that's what it is. That's what a temple is. The place where God dwells. And the church is now the place where God dwells. And I'll get to the point of that, what that means in a minute. But first, how is it built? How does this place that is the presence of God, the house of God, how does it get built? Well, look at verse 20. In him the whole building is joined together. Oops, sorry. I'm reading 21. 21. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone this house of God, this temple has a foundation and the foundation is the prophets and the apostles. Now, scholars used to think that the, that the uh, reference to the prophets was in the Old Testament. More contemporary schol- scholars believe and I think they're right that, that the reference to the prophets actually means the, the people in the New Testament who shared the apostolic teaching. So what am I talking about? Mark, who wrote the gospel according to Mark. He is the companion of the apostle Peter. Luke, okay, who wrote the gospel according to Luke, and he also wrote Acts, he was a companion to the apostle Paul, and he, these men wrote down and they proclaimed the message and the story that the apostles taught, and so what Paul is saying here is, is that the message of the New Testament, the gospel, is the foundation of the church, This message that that we believe as a community that Jesus lived the life we should have lived and that he died the death that we should have died, that he reigns and rules over this universe and he calls all people to put their trust in him and to live lives in obedience to him. That message, we believe, is the foundation of this church. Now, we're not actually at point three, but I can't help but make an application here for a second. You know what this means? This means that our unity... As a community, our unity as a community is founded on the word of God. Every Christian is under the authority of the Bible, of the scriptures. And this church is under the authority of the scriptures. That means that we as a community, we don't put our finger in the air to try to judge which way the wind is blowing, to decide what we believe is right and wrong and true and untrue in our cultural moment. We don't take a poll and ask public opinion and decide, well, the majority thinks that this is how we ought to live and therefore that is how we're going to live. No, we are under authority of the word of God. That doesn't change when the opinion polls change, that doesn't change when the majority opinion polls change. Without this authority, okay, without this authority, we cannot achieve the kind of unity that this metaphor is actually implying. Think about this. This actually happened to someone I know. They had a house where their foundation started shifting. One corner of their house somehow started sinking. So the foundation started sinking, and the house started shi- sinking in that corner. Now, it wasn't like a sinkhole opened up and they were like sitting in their living room and all of a sudden they went, whoa, ooh, we're leading all this way. It, it, it happened very, very slowly, but it was happening over time that one corner of the house started sinking. And you know how they figured out what was going on? They started seeing cracks in the walls. Because when the, the foundation starts shifting, it puts stress on the walls and the walls start to come apart. Look, there's all kinds of debates in the world right now and in the church right now about how to do everything. How do you run a church? What ministries do you do? How do you deal with COVID and the protocols? How do you, how do you handle uh, pressures around uh, sexuality in our culture? How do we deal with racial tensions between uh, different ethnicities? How do we handle the majority's relationship to indigenous peoples? All kinds of questions that can lead to all kinds of tensions and all kinds of conflicts. And the only way that we are going to be able to navigate all of these questions together and stay united so that we can remain a a, a community together, the building of the Lord together, is if all of us agree that we must, all of us, sit under the authority of this book. There is nothing else that has precedence that has supremacy over the word of God we need it listen Matthew 18 says that when somebody sins against you you go and point out their sin to them and try to reconcile with them and if you are if you are successful you won your brother over I will be completely honest with you I would not do that if it wasn't for the Bible telling me I had to because when somebody sins against me, I want to sit back and say, Come and grovel. You were wrong, I was right. Time for me to hear it, and you should come under your own strength and under your own volition. Because that's how my heart wants to operate. But the word of God tells me, uh-uh, it's your move, Van and Brink. You need to reconcile with that man or that woman. Because that is the calling of a follower of Jesus Christ. We will not be able to maintain relationships that are healthy and whole and and reflect the character of Jesus if we don't all submit together. Okay, that's how it's built. Oh, but that's not all. Here's your your question, okay? How can you trust it, right? Like it's pretty... I sound like some kind of, you know medieval fundamentalist. The Word of God is what we have to trust and live our lives under, and we live in the 21st century. How can you trust that this this book is even reliable? Well, what does Jesus say? He says that, or what does Paul say? He says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of this building. Well, think about this with me. What is a cornerstone of a building? Today we still have them, but usually what they are is they're, they're some special stone that has you know the date that the building was built and, and some inscription on it or something like that. Well, that's, and they're, they're virtually just sort of ceremonial and symbolic. In ancient times, cornerstones were critical for buildings because you see, you would set a cornerstone, and I'm saying this like I'm talking about this in front of Keith Zorn, which makes me nervous because what if I get it wrong? This guy's a construction guru, so uh, anyway. Um, Just smile and nod at everything I say, Keith. You'd set a cornerstone because you want your walls to be straight, you want all your angles to be correct. And so you'd set a cornerstone and you would build off the rest of the building off that one stone's angles. And therefore it had to be perfect. If you wanted 90 degree walls, that stone had to be perfectly 90 degrees. If you wanted your walls to go up straight, that stone had to be perfectly straight, up and down. Well, the Apostle Paul is saying here is that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church. And he's perfect. The cornerstone had to be perfect. And Jesus is perfect because he sets the angles and the direction of everything. He is the perfect cornerstone. And not just his teaching, but his essence. Jesus is the God-man. He is God himself come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is perfect in every way. He lived a perfect life. And he, he died a substitutionary death. He died a death in the place of his people perfectly fulfilling God's justice because of the sin that we have committed against him. Jesus is everything to the church. That's why we talk about Jesus all the time in Grace Valley. He is the one that we love. He is the one that we teach. He is the one that we obey. He is the one that we exalt. He is everything. I hope that one of the things that if you're a guest here and you've come here for a little while and maybe you're starting to wonder what makes this church tick, I hope that something that hits you square between the eyes is that when you leave this place, you think to yourself, man, those people seem like they're obsessed with Jesus. It's Jesus this and Jesus that and Jesus this and Jesus that all the time because he's the cornerstone. And it's all of Jesus, by the way. It's not just some of Jesus. It's all of Jesus. You see, more... uh, more sort of liberal slash progressive communities. They really like what Jesus has to say about social justice and the environment and caring for the poor and more sort of conservative and traditional communities. They like what Jesus has to say about things like abortion and family and evangelism. But if we're a truly Jesus-centered community, we take all of what he has to say and what he calls us to do. Not 90%, not 95%, 100%. And so I hope that another thing you will discover about Grace Valley is they don't fit categories very well. They seem kind of liberal because they're all about safe families and caring for the poor and the marginalized and that's such a big deal for them. Yeah, but then that guy stands up and he rants and raves about the Bible as the word of God so they sound kind of like a, a conservative community. I, don't, I, hope they don't, I hope we never fit the categories because Jesus is our cornerstone. And note also... One more part to the building. Look at verse 22. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You know, we saw it earlier as part of our liturgy. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, he says that you and I as living stones are being built together as a temple to the Lord. You and I are part of this building. Now let's think about this. Peter, Paul, both talk about us as stones, not bricks. Could have used bricks. Use stones instead. Why? Bricks are uniform, right? And they're manufactured, and they're all exactly the same. Stones... Are, they come in different shapes and sizes, they come in different mixes, you know, when even if you have stone of the same type, you know, one stone will have a little more, more minerals in it of some type than another, so they're, they're unique and they're different. And then the craftsman picks a stone, he chooses a stone and he says, I'm gonna put it in that spot, and then what does he do? He takes out a chisel and he starts chiseling it to get it to fit in that spot, but it's still the unique stone. Part of the building, but still a unique stone. Think about the, the, what this metaphor is saying. I know I'm drifting into point three, but it's okay. It means that you are all unique. Every single person in this place, we are unique. We are a unique stone of God. And so when you become part of the church, I hope you don't think that you're supposed to lose yourself here. You're not being assimilated into the Borg, Okay. You're not, but you are being incorporated into God's temple. There's a pile of stones, and God sees you in that pile, and he picks you out, and he says, I want to put you right here. Every single one of us. The Zorns didn't come here by accident. We live in a world that thinks that everything is just by chance and we look back and we say, wow, what a coincidence. But in reality, God has seen them from the beginning of time and he has said, I am going to take these stones and I'm going to put them in Grace Valley Church because they are unique people made in a unique way with unique gift sets and gift matrix and all that kind of stuff and I'm going to unleash them for the betterment of that community and for them and for my kingdom right here in Dundas. That's how significant membership actually is but realize something and they mentioned this a little bit in their testimony didn't they God's going to chisel you He's going to chisel you to fit he's going to knock off the rough edges and he's going to do that with trouble and with affliction and with hardship and with sorrow So that you can be useful in his temple. We're being built together. We're being built together, the Apostle Paul says. And now we're really moving into point three. Now we're really thinking about what it means. I just gave you the first taste of what it means. But but let's think about a couple of other things, what this metaphor means. First of all, it gives us insight into our relationship with God. You know, in this passage, there are three metaphors that Paul mentions, right? He says... That we're citizens, so we're citizens of God's kingdom, so God is our king. And then it also says that that we are people in God's household. We're members of his household. And we're going to talk more about that in, in, in the coming weeks. But it means that we're children of our heavenly father. And then he talks about how we are stones in the temple. And in fact, what you see here is an increasing... Paul is piling up metaphors to show with an increasing intensity the intimacy of our relationship with God. See, a king can dwell among his citizens, but he can't actually indwell his citizens. And a father can indwell his, his, his sons and daughters, but he, or sorry no, a father can dwell with his sons and daughters, but he can't actually indwell his sons and daughters. But here we see that God actually indwells his people. He is within us in this mysterious way. And he indwells us permanently. You see, in the Old Testament, remember what I said the presence of God in the temple, he would come down with his glory? Well, his glory would be present in what's called the holiest place of the temple. It's this one little spot inside the whole temple where the people were not allowed to go. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go in there and be in the relational presence of God, and that was it. And Paul, Pete, Paul yeah, Paul is saying that you and I, we have God's presence among us because he dwells in us permanently. It is intimacy and permanence. He's actually among us when we are gathered together. I'd like to unpack that a little more, but I have to move on. Second of all, think about this, okay? Now, some of you have shopped for houses before. What do you do when you go looking for a new house? You want to buy a new house and so you go looking for a house. You get a realtor. And you, <coughs> you used to go to open houses and stuff like that. Now you go looking for a house. Just a second so you go looking for a house and you walk up to the house and you look it over and what's the question you're trying to ask yourself does this place fit me (coughs) I gotta get my water just a second at the house and you think, "Do do I, can I see myself living here? Can I see myself with my family in this space? Does it fit? Am I a mid-century modern? Am I a Victorian? Am I a whatever? You go in the house and you start inspecting it and looking carefully. Was this thing cheaply built? Was it put together kind of with... Uh, you know, with dollars in mind, or was it actually built well and solid? Will it last? You, you look at, of course, the interior and that kind of things. And maybe you think, wow, man, we'd have to put a lot of renovations in this to get it to fit and to be the kind of place we want. Or you say to yourself, you know what? <coughs> I got the money. I'm just gonna buy a piece of land, build my own house, and then I can have it the way I want it. Now think about this. God owns the universe. The entire universe billions of galaxies, with billions of stars, with billions of planets around them, I'm assuming, and billions of stuff on those planets, many of which we know nothing about. He owns it all. He could have built himself a palace, a Taj Mahal, that is beyond our wildest imaginations. But instead, God chose to make you and me his house. People who forget about him, people who ignore him, People who rebel against him, people who outright defy him at times, people who are so ugly on the inside. And he doesn't say, I'm just going to raise the whole thing and start over. Excuse me. No, he says, I am going to invest and I am going to renovate them and make them into the house that I want it to be. But here's the point you must be so precious to him that he would say, I want to take up a residence in this people. Some of you, I know, that's one of the things you wrestle with. Am I worthy? Am I, am I, am I? You're not saying deserving. You just think that you are so awful. There's so much, let's keep the metaphor going, there's so much structurally wrong with you. There's so much mold in places growing. There's so much gunk in you that you think how in the world could God want me and here's the here's the glorious news of the gospel yes he's going to renovate you he's probably going to come in there and do a bit of smashy smashy on some stuff but he wants to because you see he doesn't see us as that he sees us as this glorious cathedral made and built for his glory and the last thing i'll say is for now is if this metaphor is true, you know what that means. That means that there's just no room. There's no room in the Bible for Lone Ranger Christians. Many people today say, I can be a Christian and follow Jesus just sort of on my own. And every single one of these metaphors we've been looking at says, no, you can't. See, you're a stone in a wall. Think about this. If God is building this wall and he puts you in as a stone in that wall, what does that mean? It means that there are stones underneath you, other people who are part of this community who are supporting you, and there are people above you in this wall who you are supporting. You have a unique gift set. You have a unique skill set. You have spiritual gifts that God has given you for the community that he has placed you in, but you've got to be placed And without your participation, that wall gets actually weakened. And you need it for two things. You need it for your own spiritual growth and for for the strength of the community, and you need it for the world outside of us. I'll close with two quotes very quickly. You know I love quoting people, smart people. Let me quote, first of all, Charles Spurgeon. He says, I know there are some who say, well, I've given myself to the Lord, but I don't intend to give myself to any church. I say, now, why not? And they answer, because I can be just as good a Christian without it. I say, are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to the Lord's commands as by being obedient? There's a brick. Now, I wish he had used stones. If I can just critique the Prince of Preachers for a moment, I think he should have used stones here. But he used bricks, fine, we keep reading. There's a brick. What is the brick made for? It's made to build a house. It is of no use for the brick to tell you that it's just as good a brick while it's kicking about on the ground by itself as it would be as part of a house. Actually, it's a good for nothing brick. So, you Rolling Stone Christians, I don't believe that you're answering the purpose for which Christ saved you. You're living contrary to the life which Christ would have you live and you are much to blame for the injury you do. That's Charles Spurgeon. And he's talking about the injury you do to yourself and you do to the community when you're not fully invested in it. But then there's the other side, which is the witness to the world. I wish I had the time to talk to you about how this amazing metaphor speaks to the human need to be part of a whole that is bigger than ourselves. You don't have to be a Christian to believe this. Philosophers down through the ages, many public commentators today are talking about the loss of the grand narrative and about how human beings long for a story in which they are part of a story that is bigger than them. And when we are in the community of Christ, when we are part of his temple, we are part of a story that is bigger than us and it speaks volumes to the church. Francis Schaeffer, 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 Francis Schaeffer, great uh, scholar from the 20th century, he said, our relationship with each other is the criterion the world uses to ju- judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Just by our being a community and letting people know that we are part of a community, a community that, as we've said in the past, is founded on the values of the kingdom of Christ. In, in being part of that and allowing others to peek into that, we are an apologetic. We are a defense of the truth of the gospel because here you find a people, Lord willing, I hope, who are so united under the banner of Jesus Christ that we can weather any division that may ra- rise up. We can love one another in a way that defies logic to a world that is so out for itself. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Father, we have not given justice to your beautiful metaphor that you give us of the church as a temple. But you have given us a taste of of the implications of it. And our prayer is, Father, that we would stand in awe of it and, and glory in it and be encouraged in our hearts to to be part of it. We thank you that you have made each and every one of us the way we are to be used in your kingdom, to be used as part of your temple, to bring you glory as we display your beauty to this world. Thank you that we are in this place, right in this neighborhood, proclaiming Jesus as Lord in Dundas, in southern Ontario, to the world, and inviting others to participate in it. Bless our efforts as we do that, and may we always do it in humble, humble faith that you will bless us, not because we are so great and so worthy, but because we have been chosen to do this work here. In your son's name we pray, amen. We're going to close our service together by partaking of communion. Now we've seen a sign and seal of God's promises in baptism and we experience again the sign and seal of God's promises as we partake of this meal together. And if you are here this afternoon and you love Jesus, you have made yourself part of a worshiping community. You've done something like the Zorns have done to declare to the world that you are the Lord's, then we invite you to join us around this table and to be fed by him. And if you're in a situation where you've not done that, uh, perhaps because you haven't had time, I don't know, or maybe because you're unsure of, of what's, what it would mean for you to make such a big step of commitment to Christ, or maybe uh, because you know that there are things in your lives that you don't want to lay down and you don't want to give them up for Jesus, then we just encourage you to keep the elements, you can slip them in your pocket, but don't partake because Paul says that whenever we eat this, drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And you won't be able to do that with integrity and we don't want, you, we don't want to make a liar out of you. But please talk to me after the service or talk to Mark, our uh, pastoral intern, or talk to Keith, our other pastoral intern, and we'd love to discuss what it would look like for you to be able to eat this bread and drink this cup at some point. Our Lord Jesus, on the, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he offered it to his friends in that upper room so long ago, and he offers it to you, his friends in this room. He says, this is my body. It is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after dinner, he took a cup, and he gave thanks, and he offered it to his friends in that room as he has faithfully offered it to his friends down through the centuries and does right now to you here in this room. He says, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. The body of Christ given for you. And the blood of Christ shed for you. We're going to stand and sing our closing song together. Let me say these words of praise as you you do that. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. up your hearts to God and receive his parting blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each of you and all of you now throughout this week and forever. Amen. Have a great day.